I've discovered that there is, that almost everybody in the world, there's this connection with religion that, that is fairly positive. And that connection typically is prayer. In other words, even non-religious types use that phrase and will often be grateful if someone were to say to them, well, we'll be praying for you. Have you noticed that? It's kind of the great common uh, event that can happen between Christians and other faiths and even those of no faith at all. But, but to say that you're going to pray for them is often received very positively. I hear it on the news. I hear it, oh, but we should be praying for them. It's almost a, a jingle sometimes, but I think it's sincere, a, a momentary event where people sense it needs to be something greater than ourselves involved in our life. So it's probably the most common, the most uh, familiar concept that, that I can think of that all people of all faiths and none would share, this idea of prayer. And yet I would argue that likewise it's probably the least understood of all our religious disciplines. And so today I want us to talk about prayer and to be sure, you can make the case that from a Christian point of view, which is of course the point of view we want to talk about it, um, I should make it very clear that what's not disputed, what's not uncertain, is that prayer is an essential, just an essential means of grace from Genesis throughout Revelations. There's never a time in all of redemptive history where you don't see this, it's just almost as if there is a true history, a the novel itself that we call the holy redemption of God in Scripture, that novel is a, is a holy conversation that's going on the whole time. And that conversation, prayer is more, though, than a conversation with God. It is a plea. It is a petition. It's praying after something in God's name, to be exact. And one thing is for certain, which is quite amazing when you stop and think about it. God far from resisting prayer, far from being put off by prayer, delights in it and desires it. One thing is for certain, though, from a Christian point of view, that we should pray and that prayer is essential. I want to go back to that quote. Maybe you read it. I put it up on the screen before you came in by Charles Spurgeon. He says it well. He says, quote, It is well said that asking is the rule of the kingdom. It is a rule that will never be altered in anybody's case. If the royal and divine Son of God never or cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect to have the rule relaxed in our favor. God will bless Elijah and send rain on Israel, but Elijah must pray for it. If the chosen nation is to prosper, Samuel must plead for it. If the Jews are to be delivered, delivered Daniel must intercede for it. God will bless Paul, and the nation shall be converted through him, but Paul must pray. Oh, and pray he did, without ceasing. His epistles show that he expected nothing except by asking for it. Well stated, Charles Spurgeon. And if you've read your scripture, it is absolutely true. We're in the midst of this little series on this heaven meets earth idea. We recognize that for heaven to meet earth, the campaign of all campaigns is the, the campaign to see people reconciled with God. You see, we got a God problem. There is a righteous and holy anger that is justifiable wherein humanity has 
rejected the very life source of their being and rebelled against his lordship. And this is a problem that the gospel resolves as Christ came to resolve the justice of God, to satisfy God's justice, but in doing so, did it in a way that we then receive mercy since he received our justice. The campaign of all campaigns, reconciling to God for heaven to be earth. And then we saw that the hope of all hopes was, was not this abstract hope, but it was this, in reconciling to God, the whole of human redemptive story, the whole redemptive history is the history of heaven meets earth, literally, physically, messy, in the human law, in the, in the earthiness of, of that heaven. The, the picture of a land uh, flowing with milk, uh, with, with honey, and, and, uh, and th- where this all ends up in Revelations, where literally the city of God coming back to earth with Christ, where that becomes, the earth itself becomes the holy city of God. And that is to say that our hope of all hopes is not in this age. It's not in what's happening now, but, but in that age which is to come. And that, that begins to refocus, of course. You can see, what should prayer look like with these campaigns? What should prayer be from the Christian point of view if the ultimate problem is reconciling with God? How would that change the way we pray for, say, traveling mercies, for bodily health concerns, for relationships, for our parents, for our children, How are we praying if the campaign of all campaigns at the crux of heaven meets earth is this being reconciled with God? What what must God do in the lives of the people for them to be reconciled? What hardships must that entail for idols to become disillusioned with? If you're thinking, you're beginning to get a clue as to what's going on here. And then, of course, with this aspect of prayer today, the power of all power. What we will see today in Acts is how it is, reflecting on the teachings of Christ about his ascension ministry. You'll see how the ascension ministry of Christ itself will re-inform the way that we pray, what we expect. And this is crucial. It has been said that the ascension is the forgotten uh, historia salutis. That's a big theological term for these, these, these significant acts within history of God bringing salvation to us. The history of salvation is that word. Historia salutis. And, and often we, we're familiar with the history of salvation event of Christ's incarnation or his death or his resurrection. But we don't tend to talk a lot about ascension. But to be sure, that is a distinct historical event that has huge salvific events. To illustrate my point, as we turn to the book of Acts in chapter 1, Luke references his first book, which, of course, if you're familiar with the Bible, is the Gospel according to Luke. That implying that this is his second book, and this is not an epilogue book. In other words, many of us might read Acts, and we might think of it as sort of this, you know, at the end of a great novel, well, here's the epilogue, and it's the story about how Sally and Jack live happily and ever after, or something like that. Acts is not an epilogue to the gospel. It is part two, according to Luke, of the gospel. The same thing can be said of John's gospel, where half, half of John's gospel focuses on the ascension ministry of Christ, starting in chapter 14. And so now as we think about prayer, we put it into the context of Christ's ascension ministry. We pray not to a suffering servant, though he was 
and understand suffering. But we pray now to a glorified, a glorified, powerful, all authority, sitting at the right hand of God, glorious upon his throne. Father, we ask now that your glory would be revealed to us, that your power would be revealed to us, that we would see you not as the humble man hanging on a cross, though we we endeared and we remember that very important historical event. Now we see one as with eyes of flaming fire. We see one glorious in might and power where all the nations and authorities and dominions are bowing to you, where you control the very essence of our life. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that in the mystery of your union with the Holy Spirit that we might therefore be united to you in hearing your word speak to us today. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if the first book wants to focus on Christ's birth till his ascension, the second book is ascension. If the first book wants to remember Christ who was baptized in solidarity with humanity and their repentance, being born under the law was his mantra as an incarnate Savior. An incarnation, he was baptized, sharing Repenting, His whole life was repentance in our stead, which is what the baptism of John symbolized. But you remember even then, John said, he who is baptized, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly the point of Acts chapter 2. Now Christ is the baptizer in Acts 2. You have heard me from me that John baptized with water, said Christ in verse 5 of our text. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I've often wondered what it was like if I could have been a fly on the wall of that upper room. For Acts, the Apostle Luke picks up with this amazing promise, this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us this, verse 1, and while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. You see, in verses 3 through 4, particularly of our passage, the focus now, the particular interest is on the 40 days prior to Christ's ascension, where he gave instruction to the apostles concerning his ascension ministry. And particularly in these instructions, he's teaching concerning the kingdom of God and how it will come by sending the power of God by the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is not just a spirit of emotion or a spirit of, of some kind of personless power. This, he's saying, he's promising that he's going to send the third person of the Trinity. That's a big event. That is a historically significant event. And of course, we know that to be true at Pentecost, and it describes and informs everything we do now. Often this is described as the age of the Spirit in the Gospel. Even that phrase that if you reject the Spirit, he's he's looking forward, if you reject the work of the Spirit that is coming in my name, 
then there is no forgiveness of sins because that is the work of the Spirit. And so it's pretty significant here that that now we are in, we're, we're brought into this upper room as one of the instructions that they're to go to that upper room and they're to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on that wall? Wouldn't you like just for a moment to be there and think, what was happening in there? What was the mood? What were they praying? What were they doing? Were they celebrating? Were they drinking wine? Having a festive party? What were they doing? What was... What was inculcated into that command to to go to the upper room and wait? Well, I want to point out three observations of what we see from that upper room. Three observations. Observations informed by the teachings of Christ as to what they did and what they remembered that I think is going to totally transform the way you think of prayer. First observation is their expectations. Verse 3, 8, I'm sorry. Remember, they remembered how it was that Christ has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They're remembering words that John and his gospel remembered as well, how it is that they should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that wherever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see, Acts will be about this continued and greater work of Christ by the Holy Spirit in, with, and through the apostolic foundation of a new community. And you're asking now, how on earth could the disciples and then by consequence us, how could we expect to do greater works even than those that were done by Christ during his incarnation ministry? I want you to think about it because the clue is right in this passage in John 15 that I just read. You see, the fruit that Christ envisions is an abiding fruit that that fruit should abide now you're thinking but didn't jesus's fruit abide not really you see all through the gospels christ's great miracles were described as signatory as signs i know this is going to kind of blow your mind maybe but think about it the work of christ in the miracles that he performed during his incarnation they were penultimate at best or you know what, every one of those guys that he saved, that he made healed, that he gave life, that he told to walk, that he gave eyesight to, all the incredible things he did, to be sure they were directing you to an age, to a time, to a promise that goes back to the heaven meets earth sermon. The, there will be a day when heaven will come to earth and all, all this, cat, it's a cataclysmic day of miraculous healing and resurrection from dead even. It's a sign pointing to that. And yet every one of those people would die. They would go blind again, if not in their grave, awaiting the cataclysmic ultimate salvation of heaven meets earth, really and literally. And so with that, this greater fruit, this abiding fruit, is distinguished then from the temporal fruit, the kind that doesn't abide. There's a the fruit that is not temporal-oriented, but a fruit that is eternal-oriented. The greater fruit, which is the abiding fruit, which is the eternal fruit. And so now it's beginning to ask, can it be true that Christ promised greater works through his ascension ministry than even was witnessed during his incarnation ministry? Yeah. More than that, Christ's works on in his incarnation ministry was located 
and one place at one time where Christ's feet happened to be on earth. And of course, in John, we envision a kingdom that will come where Christ will really and truly be present as by the work of what? Who? The Holy Spirit. Remember John? This advocate who's going to come, who's going to unite Christ, who would now be glorified in heaven under his ascension ministry to the very body of Christ on earth? This is, this is wild stuff, folks. And it's true. There's a mystic communion that exists between Christ in heaven and Christ on earth. That the works that we would do, united to Christ by, the key here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would be an age, this ascension era would be an age where there would be an eternal work of God. Greater even than the work that Christ was done, had done in the incarnation ministry. Now remember, I'm still talking about Christ's work. It's Christ's work that we're talking about in the ascension ministry of Christ by the Holy Spirit in, with, and through the body of Christ on earth. Christ receives all the glory for it in anything which the church will do. But what might such a witness entail when it says this idea of, of abiding in Christ? What's well, very interesting, before we get too excited about Wow, you mean I can pray for, for healing and I can pray for prosperity and I can pray for wealth and I can pray for you know, all this stuff. Before you get going that way, though, what is required? If the ultimate is, is this eternal fruit, an abiding fruit of heaven on earth, what would be required? Well, think about it this way. Foreshadowing hint from Christ about the last days, the days of his ascension. Here's how he described it in Matthew 16. He told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so we're talking about this great power. And yet we see now that this great power is not that kind of power that will necessarily manifest itself in temporal power. In other words, there is a now and not yet, there's a time in which now the focal point is on that great campaign of all campaigns, and that is people being reconciled with God being united to Christ who is in heaven, wherein they will be the recipients of the age which is to come in this great historical event of salvation that we call the return of Christ. But until then, there's going to need to be a, a, a putting to death idols that we tend to, to trust ourselves with, categories of things that would, would diminish our being reconciled with God. Might it be that, that when they were praying in that upper room, praying for the coming of the power of God, my guess is they understood that that power might very well be manifest in suffering. That that power might be the power that while the temporal and outer man of my life is being wasted away, there's going to be an inner and transformative power that I'm going to be renewed by, a spiritual power in uniting me to Christ, and a power that would make me a powerful witness in the world. 
How will this power come to us? What is that power? That gives you the second observation. Notice carefully what we see happening in that room. It doesn't look like they were eating and drinking and partying. It looks as though what? Well, it tells us. It's no surprise, therefore, that in anticipation of Christ's ascension ministry on the eve of the Pentecost, quote, we find the disciples, quote, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. You know, one thing that is true about this age that we live in called the ascension ministry of Christ is that Christ set up an expectation that it will be an age where prayers are answered. For example, in the Gospel of John, John fores- Jesus forsa- uh, foreshadows the coming day of answered prayer no less than six times in one chapter. John 14, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will I do. Now, this is typically where we stop. But we love to talk about these greater works. But the very next verse says this, Because... I am going to the Father, ascension, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. Again, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, let me unpack that very carefully. Did you notice the if clause? If you ask in my name. If you abide in me. What have we seen that is Christ's campaign of all campaigns? What is his focal point? It is the coming of the kingdom of God first through reconciling humanity to God. And so if this is in his name, if this is the abiding purpose of God's coming and his ministry on earth, then of course, in effect, what is being said there, insofar as your prayer is sympathetic with the prayer of Christ to the Father, then it will be done. You will receive this great power of the Holy Spirit And this great power of the Holy Spirit will transform you into my witness unto all the world in a manner in which you can expect great spiritual conversions and transformations and sanctifications happening in, with, and through the the prayers of the saints, of the people of God. But that's crucial. We've already seen how the abiding fruit is what Christ is after, not temporal fruit necessarily. Abiding fruit, which has to do with this reconciling us to God for eternal life when heaven meets earth kind of fruit. He says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask of me, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Don't ever forget what it means to pray in the name of Christ. That is in the very purpose of Christ for our redemption and the continuing redemption of the nations. 
In short, Jesus assigns no limits, though, to answered prayers, only the focal point of his own sympathy for those prayers. We are promised answers to our prayers, and we ask Jesus in his name, and, and we, he means it. They'll be answered. So now we see these apostles sitting up in the upper room, and they've heard all this teaching from John and from Luke, and, and this teaching about the ascension expectations, and oh, guess what they're doing if they believe this? Man, I wish I was a fly on the wall, but I bet there was some serious playing going on. And I mean spontaneous prayer. I mean prayer envisioning the whole world being brought to Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I bet you that prayer, though, is also a prayer for, for strength and power and joy insofar as they would be called to endure the very sufferings of Christ so that the gospel itself would be authenticated and their message would be authenticated by their own suffering. You see, it's by the suffering that they're, not only that our, our sins were atoned for, but it's by suffering now in our lives that we're brought to a place to see our sins and to discern our idols, that we might bring ourselves and put ourselves in the mercy of God and so it's therefore no surprise that they were praying and a fly on the wall probably would have heard prayers for the coming of the kingdom of God with a full understanding that what was, what was facing them, what was about to happen in their lives was to bear even the burdens of Christ and his sufferings. For in those times, they would see the kingdom of God come with great power unto the salvation and conversion and transformation of people's lives. And that brings me to the third observation. To what ends? He says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is really something we need to listen to. We need to listen to Christ, not our own wills as we pray, to discern what end he has in mind, and we know it now. The power of the Holy Spirit is coming so that the whole earth will be brought under the kingdom rule of Christ. That kingdom rule we know to be merciful and good and loving. It's, it's predicated by the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the last words before Christ ascended up into heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, for I am with you. How did he mean that? How did he mean I am with you? He means it by the ascension ministry sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. If you want to get into the mystery of that, just go read Christ's prayers in, in John, particularly chapter 17, where he talks about this amazing communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then very quickly he moves those prayers into the very communion that we're invited to, into the Holy Spirit, into the Son, into the Father. It's an incredible prayer. This kingdom of disciple-makers and grafting them into the very Israel of God. It's interesting that we tend not to want to, we tend to want to de- sort of democratize the kingdom of God as if it's a kind of one individual at a time. But, but the third observation you're going to notice here is in verse 6. For the disciples envisioned this coming, this, the fulfillment of, of, of the nations coming to Christ, the fulfillment of this great kingdom of God 
spreading around into and inhabiting the whole earth. They envision it as a restoration of Israel. You see, Acts, the whole book, is framed as the restoration of a visible covenant people, Israel. They say it this way, indeed, when they were assembled, they asked, Lord, is this the time now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Did you notice that question? When you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? His answer is yes, but it's not for you to know the time and when and, and how. But you will be my witnesses, is his next word. You will be my witnesses. Now, it's an interesting thing about a witness. A witness is someone who can simply, this is what I saw. This is what I've heard taught. Everyone can be a witness. Anyone can be a witness. It's not something that requires training. It's not something that requires some kind of a degree or even an appointment by the church. To be a witness is simply to witness, to say, this is what I see. This is what he said. And there's a sense of which the church, the Israel of God, was always to be a witness to the nations. That was their purpose. When Jesus gives to them this commission in Acts form here, he is literally repeating what was been given to Israel throughout their history, that you, Israel, you're supposed to be this great city in the midst of a city. And the church of Jesus Christ is described in that way as a royal and holy priesthood in, say, 1 Peter. So let me try to summarize these three points very quickly. First of all, we see that, that if we were a fly on that wall, there would have been a mood of great expectation for great power, the, the power of none other than the third person of the Trinity people was coming to them, coming to them on earth. Secondly, they understood, as it was true through all of redemptive history, that to access that power, we must ask for. God wants us to ask for it. And in that asking, in prayer, there is a powerful, mystical uniting with the ascension of Christ on his throne, empowered by the Holy Spirit in the midst of us now. And thirdly, we know the end. The end was not for this or that temporal cause, this or that temporal well-being, not ultimately. The end was that heaven would meet earth. That the people, that the, that the covenant people of Israel would be reconstituted in the life of this temple church that the apostle would be talking about. And that's why in the book of Acts, if you've read it, you'll know that every summary statement is a summary statement and the church of Jesus Christ flourished. Three episodes of it representing those three regions that are described in verse 8. And the church of Jesus Christ flourished in so many words. That's where the epicenter of this kingdom coming to earth is to be located. And so I want to close this way. I want us to reimagine prayers. Prayers, your prayers as in partaking of the ascension ministry of Christ. First of all, let me make it clear, when we pray in the name of Christ, we do pray remembering Christ's incarnation ministry. You see, when we pray in the name of Christ, we're going to remember that 
that this Christ did live our suffering under the law. Oftentimes, his incarnation ministry is described in, for instance, Galatians, born under the law. That means under the curse of the law, Christ was born. And that is to say, when you pray, you want to repray. You're not praying to a suffering servant right now, but you're praying to someone who understands as your servant, as someone who came to save you, he came in solidarity with your suffering. This is one who has great empathy for you. Listen in Romans 8. Who is to condemn you? It is Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. More than that, who was raised for you, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Think about that. When you pray, you pray to someone who has great sympathy with you, who understands your suffering, who understands your temptation with sin. I mean, this guy got sick just like you do. He understood bodily pain and and bodily illness. He understood social rejection. He understood being mocked and misunderstood. He suffered disillusionment and skepticism even as everyone turned against him. He understands what it means, Christian witness, to be called to something and find that the whole world rejects you for it. You remember his prayers before he died. Oh God, take this cup away from me. That is a a Savior that gets it. Our pain and our suffering. But then, of course, righteously, he endured that temptation. Not thy will be done, but your will be done. In other words, the prayer of Jesus is our guide. We pray to a God who, who empathizes with you, who understands the pain of your idols getting exposed. You had hopes for this idol to, to, to do great things in your life, only to find that that idol is, is smashed in the reality of your history. Even if you succeed in the idolatry, it proves wanting true fulfillment. Jesus understands the pain of transformation, which begins with dying, because he died your curse. Notice the words of Hebrews, for we do not have then a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as you are. Next couple of verses later, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. This blows my mind that Jesus is up there, and he lives to make intercession for you. He puts his blood into the Father's face and says, according to my blood, hear Billy's prayer on earth. But a prayer that will be translated, if not prayed, for that which Billy needs more than anything in the world, that's reconciliation with God. That's transformation by God's kingdom values so that his fruit in Billy's life will not be temporal but eternal and lasting forever and ever and ever. So number one, remember that when we pray in the name of Christ, we pray in the one who could suffer, who understands and who's sympathetic. But secondly, we pray with an assumption of Christ's unique power and authority. I I can't possibly put into words what I feel in my heart that I desire to speak to you right now. So you can close your eyes if you want, but 
the best way I know to do it is I want you for a moment, if you want to close your eyes, you can, but I want you to try to imagine the one that your prayers are given to in the name of Christ, who it is that that Christ is right now when he hears your prayers. And I'm taking the description from Revelation concerning Christ and his ascension reality. For when you pray to Christ, you pray to one whose eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Paul says in Colossians, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and are under his feet. Get that, under his authority. That's who you pray to. You have heard it said, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, I think we forget who we pray to. And when we forget, we begin our prayer meetings, we listen to Sunday mornings, and what are we imagining in our prayers? Oftentimes, I think we're imagining that we have a nice little house servant who's tidying up our house, who's coming to clean up a mess here and a mess there. We pray to to a God who reigns in heaven, and we say, oh God, give us travel mercies. Heal my eyes. Watch over my mom and my dad, my children who are traveling this weekend. Now, should we pray for those prayers? Yes. Peter said it this way, that we're to cast all of our cares upon Christ, who cares, who's and your anxieties, he says, because he does care for you. He cares for your children who are in travel mercies. He cares for your mom who's suffering pain and and whatnot, and all the prayers that we pray. But notice what I'm saying. When we pray to Jesus Christ, who is seated in the heavenlies, we're praying to one who has power that's eternal, that that transcends all the temporal things. And so when we pray in the name of Christ, we're praying in the name of one who desires my children to be reconciled with God, to be transformed as powerful witnesses in the world, that they might be the agents of that great supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and participating in the nations being saved and the coming of heaven meets earth. This isn't this little tiddlywinks provisional kind of a vision. Tidy up their room for me, Lord. We're praying for thy kingdom to come into their lives or my life or my parents' life or my colleagues' life or my friends' life or my fellow church members' life. We're praying for the kingdom of God. And when we pray for the kingdom of God, the temporal things might even need to be sacrificed in order for the coming of the kingdom of God. Are we bold and courageous enough to pray in Christ's name, in the ascension of Christ. You see, 
we often have domesticated our prayers when we ought to be praying, as the disciples no doubt were, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they walked out there with a boldness from timidity before the resurrection to a boldness where many of them would suffer to the point of even death, being hung upside down from a cross. And what's really powerful about this is that when they suffered such deaths, and we have the stories written in history, when they, when they felt and smelled their flesh burning, we are told these stories of their witness where they had a supernatural, powerful joy and happiness in some amazing transformation in a miraculous way, what would have been constituted the worst day in their life, many of these people, the stories are told how they were just glorious, almost lit up with the glory of Christ as they suffered these horrible, tragic deaths in the name of Christ. That is to say there is a power that is greater than the power of this world and I believe Christ calls us to discover that power in this church. I encourage you. If you want something, you're going to have to ask for it. But are you wanting that greater thing than the mere temporal and non-abiding fruit? Would we dare pray for it? If you're not a believer here today, there's only one way you can become a believer and have faith in Christ. You must ask for it. This is not something you can do by, by reasoning yourself to God. Their answers and Christ, it, faith in Christ is reasonable, but at the end of the day, you must ask for it. Knock, and it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall find. If you're not a believer, and you're thinking, how do you get faith? Well, I'm going to tell you the secret right now. Don't put yourself as Lord over the one who is your Lord and judge him to be true or false. Rather, put yourself under the Lord, if there is a Lord, and say, God, if you are God, and if you are Lord, then would you please give me this faith to see? And participate in the life of the church where this kingdom of God is coming in this world, and you will discover just by participating that more and more you'll get it, and you'll want it. And that's the miracle of the Holy Spirit. Let us now pray as we come to the table.